Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the First World War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 17th of June 2019 and this is episode 118. On today's programme, Dr Chris Kempshaw, teaching fellow in European history at the University of Sussex, talks about his book on the relationships between soldiers in the British, French and American armies on the Western Front during the Great War. This is published by Palgrave Macmillan. Chris, welcome to the Dispatches podcast. Could you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in the Great War? Well, first of all, thank you very much for having me. How did I become interested in the Great War? Um, I never actually planned on being a historian. When I was studying at university and the like, what I really, really wanted to be was a football commentator. As a result, I therefore did a media degree straight through my um, my undergraduate. But as the, the kind of the shape of my university education at the time was, we could take selected school courses along and one of the courses that I took was um, a course on the Great War um, experience and writing, uh, which was kind of nominally history and, and English. I thought it was fantastic, but didn't kind of really think about it that much more after that. And then when I finished my undergraduate degree and decided that it was actually going to be really hard to be a football commentator, I kind of slightly panicked and didn't know what to do then. So I went back to uh, university and did a master's in contemporary war and peace studies, which was international relations, which kind of built up my interest in in kind of relations between different uh, nations in in wartime. But my original idea for um, a study was actually going to be to look at whether or not there was a comparative kind of vision or or representation or myth of the First World War in um, Britain and France. And that was going to be my my PhD topic. But then I discovered that Basically, people had done everything you would do if you were to do that comparison, apart from the comparison. And then I was kind of slightly lost and didn't know what to do. And then I read an amazing article by uh, the late Elizabeth Greenhart called Parade Ground Soldiers, which was about French evaluations of British soldiers at the Somme. And I just thought it was the most amazing thing and just unbelievably interesting. And it crystallised all of my kind of strands of, of, of interesting regards to British and French history and kind of competing memories. But also it was an area that was so untouched almost and so ripe for for deeper study that I just thought was kind of endlessly fascinating. I think you've already touched on this, but why do you think your book is necessary? When it comes to to allied relations, a lot of the the topics or a lot of the kind of the studies so far um, have often been about how kind of the, the generals got in along with each other or how leading politicians got along with each other and that I mean that is absolutely fine there were any number of books I adore that looked exactly at that topic but I also think that to an extent it's it's slightly a red herring because yes whilst it's important you know can Haig and Joff for example get along with each other when they're coming up with allied war plans and allied strategies what actually matters is how are the guys on the ground going to make this work how are British soldiers and French soldiers who've probably never met anyone like each other before they don't understand the language they don't speak the language they don't understand the culture they've been kind of brought together simply because of the war so how are they actually going to make this work what do they think of each other because we can kind of pull issues out of, of battle plans until until the cows come home the military success of some of these battle plans is going to depend on whether or not allied soldiers can fight together can they communicate with each other? Can they find some kind of shared ground or shared understanding? And that's what I think 
this book is about. It's about can allied war plans be carried out by allied soldiers? How do allied soldiers fight together? How are they going to make this alliance work? So let's start at the beginning in the early part of the war. Now, first, we've obviously got British expedition force going to France in 1914. Um, what was the British um, perceptions of the French and French perceptions of the British? And how did um, the contact between the BEF and the French um, actually play out in reality? The early part of that kind of this this allied relation that 1941 is almost the kind of the bit that doesn't bear an awful lot of similarity to what comes afterwards because the the british expeditionary force you know is a very highly trained unit filled with professional soldiers and because it's filled with professional soldiers all of these guys have been through kind of the military institution and they they have a, an idea about what it means to be a soldier and similar with the the french soldiers in, in 1914 um they've all been through compulsory military services so they've got an idea about what it means to be a soldier and what actually happens when you bring these professional british soldiers and these kind of well-trained french soldiers together is they don't agree on what it means to be a soldier and they don't really understand why the others act the way that they do so for the british they believe that a kind of a key aspect of soldiering is to look soldierly and you know, a good uniform to be smart to be well turned out it's a sign of discipline which is a sign of ability and then they they kind of interact with these french guys who rock up with like huge great big beards and um dirty uniforms and they don't appear to be kind of interested in discipline and interested in appearances these British soldiers are kind of looking at these guys going, what, what on earth are you? What are you, what are you doing? Why do you look this ridiculous? And by the, the, the same token, the, the, the French soldiers kind of understanding that they're in a, in, a, in a battle for French survival, view the war as a kind of a, a moment of kind of national and personal cleansing. But kind of, it's almost like anti-cleansing, you know. You can't defend France without getting dirty. You can't fight an all-encompassing war to the death without acting like a man and to them that's that's you grow your hair out you get you get muddy in the very dirt of, of france and they look over at these french these british soldiers who who roll up in you know, lovely spick and span uniforms all perfect haircuts you look like butlers what what is it that you're trying to do how can you fight a war whilst also making sure that your uniform is always spotless and you have this massive culture clash between what it means to be a soldier in 1914 between these professional british soldiers and these professional french soldiers how that is actually going to end up is still unclear today because the 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 campaigns of 1914 you know the early ones go so badly um up until kind of the Marne, british soldiers in particular never really get an opportunity to to be comfortable in france even to be comfortable around the french um and get to know them and kind of start sharing experiences and by kind of the easter you know the february march april of 1915 that original british expeditionary force has effectively been destroyed really to all intents and purposes it's being you know packed in with new recruits and the, the kitchener's armies are going to move into to france in in mid-1915 so that early 1914 strand never really gets the opportunity to have a culmination you know to figure out okay how are these two groups of professional soldiers going to interact with each other because the british army as it, as it was in 1914 just doesn't survive long enough so how does the citizen soldier and the territorial who obviously come after the uh, professional soldier cope with their french and did they learn um, obviously they were they were novice soldiers did they learn from the french professionally yeah i think they do and i think what happens is these kind of citizen soldiers these civilian soldiers the kitchener's recruits they you know they go through their training and they kind of they're, they're filled with a kind of a, an understanding of the institution and they're filled with military confidence to an extent and then they arrive in france and they start looking around and I, and they react like well we i have no idea what i'm doing 
I, I wasn't prepared for this war that is in front of me. I've got no idea what I'm doing. I'm not a soldier. But I look around and I see all of these French guys and they seem to know the score. They seem to know what they're doing. And British soldiers, there's lots and lots of stuff in, in their diaries, which, which come out in the book, of them visiting French trenches and hanging around the French during attacks or watching the French to go about their everyday business or watching the French when they attack in an attempt to kind of pick it up as they go along, seemingly. Now, the way that this works or the reason that this works is because the French take it upon themselves to act like good hosts. They've been hearing an awful lot about this kind of volunteer British army that's going to supposedly going to turn up at some point and, and win the day. Then when it turns up, the French aren't that impressed by it because the British don't appear to know what they're doing. But the French understand that the only way that they're going to win this war is if the British know what they're doing. So why not be good hosts? Why not invite them over to the trenches? Why not invite them over to meet us? Why not share dinners? Why not share kind of festivities? We'll, we'll bury our dead together. We'll mourn together. We'll drink together. And you get this kind of cross-cultural sharing both in regards to kind of taking the edge off of what's almost like a uh, a homesickness. It's it's like a culture shock for, for the British army and the British soldiers, you know, being so far away from home in such a, an extraordinary situation. But it allows the British to kind of feel their way into it a little bit, while the French are kind of trying to coax them along. And were there any sources of conflict between British and French soldiers? Yes. Uh, yes, there are. Some of them are kind of fairly predictable, uh, but also very weird in their own sense. So obviously the, the British get largely uh, deployed kind of from the Somme and above up towards um, Belgium. And what actually happens here, and it's outlined in Craig Gibson's fantastic book, uh, Behind the Front, which is about British soldiers' relations with, with French civilians, is that the British in these sectors begin to take it upon themselves to, to remake France in Britain's own image to make the British soldiers feel more at home. So they start planting British plants in people's gardens. They have British taxis and British buses and that driving around. French soldiers, when they go home on leave, begin to think that they're being colonised by the British army. And that's an issue between British and French um, soldiers, as is the kind of the, the viewed monetary advantage that the British soldiers have. They can outspend the French. So when British soldiers come into a town, all of the prices go up. French soldiers find that very, very annoying. But also what the French kind of privately think it particularly in 1960 is that the british just don't understand they don't understand the war that they're fighting and it kind of comes back to some of the issues of 1914 in which they complain that the british are so concerned with looking smart and clean that they die stupidly french soldiers on the somme criticize british soldiers for not lying down in the mud whilst being under attack and the, the phrase they come up with is, you know, they clearly think it is better to kind of to stand up and appear brave and clean than to lie down and get dirty and live. And I think one French soldier refers to it as being, you know, very fine, but not very smart. France has got enough dead heroes. It doesn't need dead British heroes as well. It needs the British army to do what needs to be done. And that's that's a kind of a constant ongoing issue for the French. They don't necessarily think the British understand the full scope of what's going on. And that has issues later in the war as well. In 1917, the Americans arrive, and, and there's probably two parts to this question. The first one is, how did the British and the French interact with the Doughboys when they came over? And probably a su subsidiary question is, looking at it from the Americans' point of view, how the Americans viewed their, their new British and French allies. So starting with the British and French on the Americans. So the British and French on the Americans. The French one is, is an easier one to explain, because the French kind of feel like a shared republican revolutionary heritage with uh, with the americans so when the americans kind of turn up it, it's almost like a, a joint loving 
at times. So you have um, the, the the French and the Americans share parties on like July the 4th on Independence Day in 1917 and again in 1918. And the, and the French are kind of very pleased to have this kind of extra big powerful army but also they're not the british they're slightly more like us in the eyes of the french to an extent the british much less sold on the americans to be honest um some of these issues go back to um issues with the actual kind of diplomacy between britain and, and america in the in the lead up to america joining the war and the immediate aftermath but the british think that the americans have been infected with too much democracy um they're unruly they're rowdy they don't show due respect to rank or more importantly to the British and the, with the British viewing themselves as, as a great power. They don't follow orders. They're, they're, the British just don't like them. They don't think they're acting like soldiers, even more, kind of more than or even worse than the French were in, in 1914. So the British find the, the Americans uh, abrasive and, and arrogant and annoying. And also probably they view them as a threat. They view them as a threat because the, the Americans could conceivably replace the British as the best ally in the eyes of the French. But also this kind of idea of an, an emerging American power um, on the other side of the Atlantic is not kind of on the list of you know, things that Britain really, really wants to happen. It's going to have to happen because needs must. But Britain isn't in this to create a new superpower on the other side of the Atlantic. For the other way, when the what do the Americans view of the British and the French? The Americans do quite like the French to an extent. They they think the French are very tired in 1917. So they've heard a lot about how you know the magnificent things the French have been doing, um, particularly around Verdun in 1916, captures the, the American imagination, actually captures the British imagination as well. Um, when they meet the French, they think they're very tired and they think they're exhausted and not necessarily got kind of long left in them. They also have issues with the French in regards to uh, race with the imperial troops. They, they don't understand why the French are so kind of accommodating to kind of black uh, French African soldiers. And the, and the French don't understand why the Americans are so unpleasant towards African-Americans either. So that kind of sets up a, a kind of an ongoing kind of uh, issue between them. The Americans hate the British. The British and the Americans just don't like each other. The, the British think that the Americans are arrogant. The Americans think the British are superior and patronising. And what you end up with is constant rumours of fights breaking out between British and American soldiers. You get that in 1917 and 1918. You also get a lot of it after the, the armistice in November of 1918. Some groups of Americans have to be given like dedicated lectures called How to Get On With the British to avoid causing an issue within the alliance. The Americans, it, and it carries across to the French as well, seem to kind of nod their way through their training. So British and French instructors get sent to America to train American soldiers before they get moved across the Atlantic. And both the British and the, Amer and the French kind of get the feeling that the Americans Americans are just kind of nodding along going yeah 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 we'll take this we'll take this all on board just waiting for the moment when they don't have to answer to the British and the French anymore and then they'll do exactly what they want and actually that partially turns out to be the case in 1918 but the the British just don't feel like the Americans can be told anything they just don't want to learn they don't they don't understand how we do things here it's almost like the Americans are nouveau riche they come over here with their fanfare and their money and you know their their their, their music and their excitement and they just don't know how we do things in Europe and that that's kind of an ongoing kind of old world new world thing between them now you mentioned in 1918 that the relationships between the allies come under severe strain can you explain what happened seems to be the start point certainly on the surface is the the German spring offensives beginning in in March of 1918 in reality, the, the fruits of this probably lie at Verdun 
1916 and then emerged through 1917. Because whilst Britain and France get on okay at the Somme in 1916, what the British don't see is what's happening to the French at Verdun, where the French are effectively being radicalised, brutalised by the fighting at Verdun. All the French army go through the, the battle at Verdun. What it means is, as you see in the mutinies in 1917, that there are now things that the French won't accept from their military leaders. The other thing that comes out of it is that there are now things that the French won't accept from their allies either. They won't accept a learning on the job mentality from the British that they had in 1916. They won't accept it in 1917 and 1918 anymore because the French have been through too much. So what happens when the Germans attack in 1918 on the 21st of March and around Saint-Quentin and the British begin to fall back and give way is that the French are apoplectic. You see it in the the writings that get censored by the French Postal Service that the French are just absolutely furious. And it's it's an anger born of real hurt, real feeling of betrayal that we've been through all of this. We've been through 1914. We went through uh, the you know, battles around Ypres in 1950. We went through the Somme and Verdun in 1916. And you did Passchendaele in 1917. And we had the Camin des Dames. And after all of this, after everything we've been through, we're going to lose and it's going to be your fault. And that that betrayal runs through the French army in 1918, this fury directed at the British for running away when um, push came to shove. Now, the British, partially because they're busy with other things, you know, desperately trying to survive this massive German onslaught, don't really understand that the French now kind of despise them. They're largely oblivious. And that's probably a good thing, because if they'd have clocked on to the change in mentality in the French army, then things could have got very, very bad very, very quickly. But because the British suddenly just drop off a cliff in the eyes of the French, they replace them with the Americans. The Americans suddenly start coming in, start doing fantastic things. They fight together, the Muse are gone and the like. And suddenly the Americans are raised up in the eyes of the French. The British turned out to to be worthless partially in their eyes at points in 1918. Now the Americans have arrived, they're going to make things, everything better. But then the French discover what Woodrow Wilson has planned with his 14 points. And that's not fine for the French either. They, you know, they haven't been fighting all of those things. That I was saying, you know, 1914 and the Somme and Verdun and all of these things. They haven't been through all of that for now an American president on the other side of the Atlantic to decide what the peace is going to look like and decide what the, the, the peace treaty is going to look like and, and what victory means. So that kind of compromises the Americans in the view of the French as well. And what you end up with is almost kind of like a tentative by November 1918 kind of truce and accord between the three um, the three allies, where the, the, the French are like, well, thanks very much, Americans, but you've, you've turned up late and you're trying to effectively rob us of our victory. Britain, not great in 1918, but you have been through this whole thing with us, so maybe good enough. And that's what you kind of see by uh, the armistice in, in 1918. The, the problem that then emerges, it's fantastic, the armistice is signed, peace is broken out, everybody parties together, and you get lots of stories of British, French and American soldiers kind of drinking and singing together. But the removal of Germany removes the purpose of cooperation. And the British and the Americans already don't like each other. The British and the French have, you know, you know stumbled through 1918, but there's, there's not necessarily a huge amount of love lost in the eyes of the French. And the whole thing begins to unravel very quickly after November the 11th. So again, you get brawls in the streets between British and American soldiers. And there's a, there's a conversation in the book um, where an American soldier stabs a British soldier through the throat with a bayonet. And in response, American soldiers are dragged behind a truck for several miles. It, it just breaks out into violence. 
between them because the French don't have to put up with shortcomings in their allies anymore. The British don't have to put up with American arrogance. The Americans don't have to put up with British superiority. And all of them want to go home. We, we came, we fought, we won the war. I don't understand why I have to stay here anymore. I want to go home. And that's one of the kind of the sadness aspects of the alliance in 1918. It's just how quickly it comes to pieces after November the 11th. You'd, you'd think, oh, you know, this is going to endure to an extent. And the memory of it endures into the interwar period. But those relations between the armies just begin to disintegrate so quickly. So overall, what lessons do you think we can take from your book? Firstly, is that on a kind of a, in a top down perspective, you know, when I was talking earlier on about um, the uh, a lot of the studies being focused at kind of uh, top level issues is actually a lot of those top level issues, you know, concerns of generals and politicians just don't carry down into the trenches. They don't mean anything to, to a man in a trench, you know, who's been there for weeks with uh, a Frenchman by his side who he's never met before. Doesn't really care about, you know, the great game between the great powers. But also that those same politicians and generals showed no interest in how their soldiers were going to get along. They never really planned for it before the war. Once the war came, it was too, there was too much going on. So what comes from that is that actually all of the successes of the relations come from the soldiers themselves. They were the ones who found a way to make it work. So one of the lessons we can take from it is actually you can put people from disparate cultures with you know, very limited shared similarities together in these extraordinary situations and they will make it work. But you have to get very, very lucky for that to, to happen. It's undeniable, I think, that the British and the French armies got lucky. If those British and French soldiers had not found a way to work together in a, in a feasible manner with no direction from above, then I think a lot of these allied battles would have turned out very, very differently. So the, the kind of the main lesson of, of the book is that allied relations are important in kind of a soldier to soldier issue in the kind of the everyday life. But they have a real military impact and a real military effect. I genuinely don't believe that the alliance survives 1918, even with relations falling off a cliff, if they weren't already at a relative high point from 1916. To understand why the war and those final battles of 1918 pan out, you have to understand what those allied soldiers think of each other, because they're the guys who are going to fight these battles. They're the guys who are going to make this work, and they're the guys who's going to win this if they trust the nationality next to them to do their job. Where can people learn more about your research? Um, so you can get hold of my book through the Powergrave website. You just kind of go on to, to powergrave.com or powergrave.co.uk and kind of search my, for my name or search for my book there. Now, I've actually got a, a discount code from Powergrave for 20% off of the book, which um, the discount code will run until July the 3rd. So hopefully that will give some of your, your listeners the opportunity to, 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 to purchase it if they want to. Um, now, the discount code itself is just a, a kind of a random collection of, of letters because it's, it's unique to my book. I'm going to read it out now and hopefully um, it'll be of use to, to any of your listeners. So the code itself is capital Z, capital F, capital T, lowercase j, lowercase n, lowercase w, lowercase f, lowercase x, lowercase p, lowercase s, capital C, lowercase e, lowercase r, lowercase y, lowercase r. There's a, a YouTube video of me talking at the Legacies of War group up at the University of Leeds a few years back about allied relations for, 
um, the war, which might be of interest to people. Um, there's no there's no images alongside of it because of copyright issues over over the images that I was using. So it will just be the sound of my voice. But that might be of interest to people. Just to point out that as it's the 17th of June today, um, your offer only lasts until the 5th of July. Is that correct? Uh, the 3rd of July. Yes. Yes. So from, July, from today until the 3rd of July, it will be for those two, next two weeks. That'll be that'll be open for people. That's great. And sorry, your final point was. Uh, my final point was going to be I'm, I'm also hoping to have uh, something out later this year in War and Society uh, Journal about um, allied relations, particularly in 1918, uh, kind of a continuation of an article that, that Elizabeth Greenhall wrote, the one that I mentioned earlier, one that kind of inspired my uh, my PhD and, and then uh, the book. So I'm hoping that will be coming out later this year and that should also be be quite nice and quite interesting for anybody kind of looking for, for an extra element. Chris, thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much indeed for having me. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Buthworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time.